is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays, and joining me today, the one and only Lindsay Jones. Lindsay, how are you? I'm good, Robert. I'm really excited for our debut podcast, although I've listened to all the other ones this week, and they've been awesome, and I'm super intimidated <laughs> to follow those you guys. You really shouldn't be. There's no reason for you to be. This is going to be great. Lindsay and I are going to be coming to you guys every single Thursday during the season. We're going to be previewing that weekend's games. We're going to do it in a way that we think is pretty fun, just kind of getting into what we think is at stake, what matters most, the questions we want answered by the end of the weekend, just kind of giving you a little bit of a different spin on what's kind of a staid format in the preview world. But I'm excited about doing that, and I'm excited about doing this. Today, we are doing and previewing a division that Lindsay knows extremely well, and that is the AFC West. It's the division closest to my heart and geographically. So yeah, I'm here I'm here in Denver. <laughs> Those things tend to overlap, overlap right? a little bit. They tend to, yeah, tend to be intertwined. Yeah, so yeah, here we are. I'm here in Denver. So yeah, the AFC West, I've been covering the Broncos, well, the league at large, but this will be my 13th year covering the Broncos. So yeah, the, let's get well into the AFC West. I was just in Colorado last week and I was there for about a week and I went on a lot of hiking trails. It was the week before I started working here. I can finally understand after truly embracing the outdoor lifestyle that is the Colorado area, why people do that and why people live there. I I completely get it now. I never really understood like a hiking based lifestyle, but after some of those hikes with Molly and my dog, I really, really do get it. Yeah, it's great. And there's a reason that a lot of guys, when they come to play for the Broncos, they end up staying here. It's because they realize like, hey, this weather's actually pretty nice. Uh, I can get to the mountains, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So I'm glad you enjoyed your trip to Colorado. Um, We love it here. It's great. And one of the interesting things that I've been thinking about with this division, with all these teams that are not going to have fans in their stadiums this year, will the Broncos still have an advantage because their true home field advantage is playing at 5,280 feet. And that's going to be still still here, whether there's fans in the stadium or not. So we can debate that. We can discuss if maybe the Broncos get a little extra edge because teams are still going to have to play at altitude even if you know there's, there's nobody in the stands watching. Melvin Gordon, the week that I was out there, was the week that I think he essentially kind of came out during the interview and was like, yeah, playing here is bullshit. <laughs> this absolutely sucks. And I had just gone on like a six-mile hike the day before and had the exact same thought. So me and Melvin Gordon, we're about the same athletically. Like our bodies are fine-tuned to do the same sorts of stuff. So I definitely understood where he was coming from at that moment. We are not going to start with the Broncos, though. We are going to start with the defending champion, Kansas City Chiefs. And this may sound strange when you're talking about a team that just won the Super Bowl. But I don't think we have to spend a ton of time talking about the Chiefs. They're a known quantity in pretty much every way, not a lot of turnover. I mean, is there anything that really jumps out to you that's a question mark with this team? Or do you feel like you have a pretty good handle on them as we walk into the season? Yeah, I mean, I think of any team in the league, right? We know exactly who the Chiefs are. We know what their coaching staff is. We know what their roster looks like. You know, they had two pretty significant opt-outs. So, you know, their offense will look slightly different you know their their offensive line will be a little bit different their running back situation is going to be a little different but we know who they are so i think the biggest question about the the thing that i want to know mostly about the chiefs is how much better can they get because you know patrick mahomes lit the league on fire in 2018 and 
for much of 2019, it wasn't who he wanted to be. You know, I think this time last year, we were talking a lot about just how much better could Patrick Mahomes get. And then he sprained his ankle in week one. He had the knee injury. You know, I guess that was what week seven or eight in Denver. That was mid mid October. Mm-hmm. And we didn't really get to see kind of peak Patrick Mahomes until late December and into the postseason. So now when I look at the Chiefs and I think about what the 2020 Chiefs are going to are going to look like, it's just nothing but untapped potential. And it's looking for these little nuggets of, okay, maybe their running game can get better here. Their red zone offense could get better there. And less so, you know, it's schematic changes or personnel changes that we're talking about for these other teams. The Chiefs are an interesting thought experiment when it comes to how to build a modern football team. And when I look at them, it kind of reminds me of what the Colts did with Peyton Manning for a really long time, where you had this just kind of, you know, this force, this rock at the middle, in the middle, and then you just kind of saw the moving pieces around it, the things they tweaked, how they tried to change things, how they got better and vacillated from season to season. And the Chiefs are kind of firmly in that right now. I heard from somebody in that building that they were considering taking a wide receiver at the first round. I mean, this is a team that is just trying to build the best offense possible right now at every single turn. And that's where the Clyde Edwards-Hilaire pick comes in. They went and they kind of refortified their offensive line. I really do believe they're of the opinion that we're going to try to score 40 points a game. We'll figure the rest out later. And we dare you to stop us. And that's why I kind of like the Clyde Edwards-Hilaire pick. Even if the value isn't necessarily there, it's like, you know what? Screw it. Just score as many points as you can. Make that offense literally unstoppable and just see if everybody else can keep up with you. Oh, I was totally in line with you on that draft pick where it's probably the only time I'll ever, you know, praise a running back pick in the first round because as you said, the value for first round running backs, just it just isn't there. But when you're paying everybody else in your team already, when you have every other piece on your offensive roster really set... You can, you have that luxury that you can go ahead and you can draft for need where, you know, that's where other key, other teams get in trouble is when they say like, oh, we need we really need a new running back and you and you reach for one. But I don't think he was a reach there. And he was exactly what they need. And he's the perfect guy, I think, for an Andy Reid offense and for a Patrick Mahomes offense. And, you know, the, the running game was what kept the Chiefs, I think, from I mean, there are a lot of things, but I think. If they hadn't lost Kareem Hunt at the end of the 2018 season for the reasons that they lost him, you know, we can get into all of that stuff. But, you know, I think if they had kept that running game intact in 2018, I think they would have won the Super Bowl in 2018. And they managed to win the Super Bowl last year, even with a really bad running game um, that kind of caught fire at times in the playoffs. And Damien Williams had a massive Super Bowl. But Charles Edwards Hilaire gives them a chance to have just a fully loaded, well-rounded offense. And, you know, potentially he can fill that kind of that that role that Kareem Hunt did in, back in 2018 when they were really starting to take off. It's a really good point. And I think that you're completely right. They couldn't take advantage of situations that this Chiefs team as constructed could usually take advantage of. They were actually below average at running the ball into light boxes with 11 personnel on the field, which you would assume they would crush teams with that because teams are so worried about Mahomes. And shockingly, when you consider Andy Reid's track record, this is a team that was below average on running back screens last year in terms of DVOA. And that's, with Edwards Hilaire, that's not going to happen again. So I think he's somebody that can really thrive in that offense in a way, you know, typically we'd just say, well, you could throw anybody in there. But last year, that wasn't the case. So I feel like with him in there, they're going to be able to take advantage of weak spots and defenses that are created by the way their offense is designed. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's why they were so, you know, why they loved Kareem Hunt so much early in his tenure there is because he was such an, a, a huge part of their passing game as well. And mm-hmm. um, Charles Edwards Hilaire is going to slide right into there. I understand the fantasy hype about him. I mean, he's going super high in all these fantasy drafts that I've been following and paying attention to. So, um, I, you know, I'm scared of their offense. I think the entire NFL should be scared of their offense. And I think barring disaster, right? I mean, barring an injury situation, I don't think there's any feasible scenario in which they are not the best offense or one of the two best offenses in the NFL, just because there's a couple other, you know, a couple other teams that are going to be really awesome too. But, you know, I think it's, I think it's feasible to expect that Patrick Mahomes is going to be the MVP front runner for much of the season. You know, I think he's, his statistics are going to bounce back much closer to what they were in 2018, if not exceeding where they were in 2018, which is terrifying given yeah it's it's, the, it's unbelievable to think about but i don't disagree with you i know that last postseason feels like 18 years ago i mean it's just bonkers to me that that super bowl and all of their playoff <laughs> games were actually in 2020 you know there's that meme or whatever going around right now where it's like post a picture of yourself blissfully unaware and i almost posted one from arrowhead stadium where we were literally <laughs> blissfully unaware but we're just in that run those those postseason games where he led those ridiculous comebacks, that Texans game, the second half against the Titans, everything that he did in the Super Bowl, every one of those games, he did something that made you go, holy shit, I can't believe I just saw that. And yeah. I think he's just going to keep continuing to do that because Andy Reid is that creative, Andy Reid is that innovative, and Patrick Mahomes is just that much of a freaking unicorn that we've never seen in the NFL before. And we're just really lucky to be able to kind of live in this timeline where we get to where we get to watch him take over this league and really become the face of this league. What's really scary is, you know, this the best case scenario is easy to picture. We've seen it so much with the Andy Reid Mahomes partnership. But the way they've kind of built this team and the way they built it this offseason, some of the moves they made, they did a great job protecting themselves against the worst case scenario. And the what the spot I'm thinking about specifically is the offensive line. After they lose uh, Duvernay-Tardif to the opt-out, they go and they sign Kalecha Yosemite. I they, They're putting him on the left side. They're putting Andrew Wiley on the right side next to Mitchell Schwartz. I don't think that's a downgrade. I think they're going to be better on the offensive line than they probably have been in the past. And then they go get Mike Remmers, who can play any spot on the line except for center. Daniel Kilgore is somebody who is, you know, being able to play in a pinch. Martinez Rankin can do the same thing. They have so much depth on the interior. It just seems like they can survive a couple injuries. And the same is true at wide receiver. Because even if you lose Tyreek Hill, you still have Nicole Hardman that can give you that speed element. Structurally, the offense can look the same. So there's just so many of all the timelines that are possible with this offense most of them end up with them being like the best offense in the league by a pretty wide margin. And that's what's scary. It doesn't even matter if it ha- it goes perfectly. They're still going to dominate. And, and 2019 gave us a perfect example of kind of the worst timelines and the way yep. that they were able to survive some of this stuff. You know, they survived Patrick Mahomes dislocating his kneecap. They survived, you know, they played a few weeks without Tyreek Hill. The offensive line went through a lot of injuries last year where they were subbing guys in and out throughout the year. And it didn't matter. By, by the time we got to January, they were the best team in the NFL, and it really wasn't that close. So I want to talk about the defense, but not on a person-by-person basis. I more want to talk about it in a big-picture philosophical way. So right after the Mahomes contract comes down, they give Chris Jones that big extension. And I think if you're building a team just in a vacuum, you're just numbers on paper, 
you probably wouldn't give that contract out after signing the Mahomes deal, after giving Frank Clark the contract they did, Tyron Matthew, etc. It's a big deal, and they're going to have to na- navigate and negotiate some cap stuff here over the next couple of years. But I want to ask you about this. Do you feel like that sort of contract and rewarding an in-house guy and kind of keeping harmony in the locker room is more about managing personalities even than managing a roster at that point by rewarding him and making sure that you keep everybody in the building happy? Yeah, I definitely think there's something to that, especially when they were paying a lot of outside guys. You know, they were exactly. bringing in Frank Clark. They were, you know, trading substantial draft capital to bring in Frank, Frank Clark and then paying him over $100 million. They're bringing in Tyron Matthew, um, bringing in Anthony Hitchens. You know, they were bringing in other guys. So, you know, Chris Jones was one of their best. I mean, it's crazy. He was a second round pick. Remember him falling out of the first yeah. round and back in 2016 and him just it's being that tweener this, thing, man. Yeah. When you're, you don't have a defined position, people tend to think that's a bad thing. It's usually a good thing, especially on defense. And you just knew from the second that he showed up there that he was special. You know, he's a special guy. He meant so much to that locker room. And, you know, I think there is a message setting thing there about you're important to us. You're a foundational piece. But it's also, that's also a football move too. I mean, they would not have won the Super Bowl without Chris Jones. No. And, you know, I think we can get really into the, the you know, the, the analytics on their defense and how bad their run defense was at times last year. But what it comes down to and what it came down to in the playoffs, um, and especially in the Super Bowl, was that they got a bunch of closers. They have guys that when, when it's the fourth quarter and you need big stops, you need a turnover. You turn the game over to Chris Jones. You turn the game over to Frank Clark. And the they make that happen. I mean, you could have made a case that in some other universe where Patrick Mahomes isn't Patrick Mahomes, that Chris Jones could have been MVP of the Super Bowl. He was that dominant down the stretch for the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. So, you know, there was definitely a message setting. It, it sends a really good message to the rest of that locker room. Um, he's so important to the, the personality of that team, kind of that swagger that they wrote, which I hate that word. I'm probably going to use it 50 times today, though. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> it's a Drew know, Lock podcast. You're going to have to use it 100 it's, times. It's true. It's it's coming. Just wait. Um, but, you know, he he he's that guy who kind of he plays nasty. He plays right up to that line, but he's fun as hell. He's the best quote. You know, he's, he, he kind of is the guy that everybody gravitates to um, up in their front seven. So bringing him back was key. I mean, I I don't know how many mailbags and podcasts and stuff I did this spring where people would ask, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? And, you know, you talk about value for interior linemen and defensive tackles and all this stuff. And it was like, you got to resign him. I get the value of the position and how much they're now allocating to him specifically. But in this specific case, just like the Edwards Hilaire move, it fits exactly what they are doing and what they needed to do. So I'm okay with it. Even if you have to skimp later on on a couple different spots because you're a little bit cash strapped. I think this is still the way I would build because when you have Mahomes, you can afford to skip on certain positions. And on defense especially, I think when you have that offense or that offense is projected to be what it is over the next five to 10 years, all you need on defense is a couple game wreckers that can steal you one or two big plays a game. And right now they have Chris Jones, Frank Clark, Tyron Matthew. That's enough. If those three guys with just a lot of just kind of anim- anonymity around them is probably enough. And I think overall, you know, this defense finished 14th in DVOA last year, and there are a lot of reasons in my mind why they can be as good or better this year. Because Frank Clark came on strong at the end of the year where he wasn't very good at the beginning. He was hurt. Oh, my God. The yep. injuries, the stuff that he went through, he lost like 40 pounds. 
in the middle of the season. And you last saw year. what he could be late when you yeah. when he came on. You saw what he could be. That combination with him and Jones, and then really leaning into using Tyron in all the ways that you can. You know, I think they were a little reticent about that at the beginning, and then they said, you know what, this is how we're best. They were number one in the league in the number of. Uh, opponent pass plays where one of their safeties was in coverage on a wide receiver. It's a cool stat that Football Outsiders did this year. They were at 39%, number one in the NFL. That's all about Tyron Matthew and the ability to use him in all those different ways. You think, we'll see what happens with Juan Thornhill, but if he can come back healthy, I have no reason to think this defense won't be at least solid again. And if it is, they're terrifying. They're absolutely terrifying. Right. And, you know, there's so many these other teams that we talk about, about, you know, how good does the defense need to be? And what we've learned for the Chiefs is they really don't have to be that great. They just have to be good enough. Yeah, we can talk about their run defense. And our colleague, Shiel Kapadia, like really put it best in his his preview that he did of the Chiefs so much better than I could. And their run defense was a weakness. And that's the way that the Niners tried to attack them in the Super Bowl. And ultimately, it wasn't good enough. I mean, the Niners ran great. I mean, they had great success on the ground against the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. But unless you can go up, score a ton of points to go along with it, it really isn't going to matter because all you got to do to get is a couple stops. And that's and the Chiefs, they have the guys that can go and get a couple stops. And, um, you know, I'm really excited for one Thornhill to come back. I know it's kind of a long timeline. I mean, to, it's tearing your ACL in late December is a nightmare because that ruins your postseason and it's putting you really, really behind going into the next year. But he really came on. He was such a revelation in that defense. And they're going to be much better with him at free safety than they were with Daniel Sorensen, who was fine. And he, I mean, he really did what he needed to do. I mean, he made the play of the game in that Texans, uh, in the Texans playoff game where he blew up that fake punt attempt, you know, just blew it up solo tackle. It was pretty incredible. But I think once they get Thornhill back, I'm not going to have a ton of questions about that secondary anymore. And, um, you know, if the they corners up- are shaky. I mean, yeah. it's, especially with Breland being out, I, I, they're not a very good group, but it's the same conversation. It's like, how good do they need to be? Like, they're going to be fine. And like top 25. Okay, fine. Like a top yeah, 25 if you're the defense? 22nd best defense and you have the offense they're going to have, that team is a Super Bowl contender. I mean, that just period. It's it like the, the run defense thing is interesting and it's you're right. I mean, the run defense was bad. Their linebackers are kind of a nightmare. We'll see what happens with Willie Gay. He's probably going to come in, I assume, and take a lot of snaps this year as a second round pick. But if your plan is to run the ball for six yards a pop against the Chiefs, good luck. It's a terrible plan. You need a new plan if that's how you're <laughs> going to try to beat this team because it's not going to work. Are, are you listening to the, the the coaching staff of the Denver Broncos? Because I think that is kind of their plan. Oh, God. Well, we'll get to that in a second. I, the, a lot of things I like about the Broncos, the running back choices are not one of them. Before we get to that, let's talk about the Las Vegas Raiders because this is a team that I think it's a good time to st- take stock of them because we're almost exactly two years removed from the Khalil Mack trade. I believe it's the two-year anniversary was yesterday. I was in Napa for a wedding. I woke up. My phone had melted to all of the text messages and everything else for the trade because it, he went to the Chicago. I remember that day vividly. And now two years removed, I think we can really kind of evaluate what the Raiders got from that deal, from the Cooper deal. Because draft picks, dra- draft capital, cap space, all that stuff, it's great. But it eventually has to become players. It eventually becomes not theoretical, it becomes practical. And if you look at all the players that have filled either with the money or the draft picks that they've accrued over the last two years. You have Josh Jacobs and Jonathan Abram in the same class. Damon Arnett from that last Bears pick. They have Trent Brown 
making $21 million this year, which is about what Khalil Mack is making this year. Tyrell Williams making 11, who's on IR. Amari Cooper's making 12, so that's pretty much a wash. It doesn't seem... There's so much turnover, so many moves, but now that the dust is settled, I'm just not sure how good this team got with all of those resources. Yeah, and it's a really good question because, you know, we all want to rush to grade that trade. And I'm sure actually, I'm sure I did grade that trade. Oh, I danced on the grave instantly, instantly. Uh, But there were, I mean, but there were a lot of people who thought that the Raiders cleaned up because of just how much capital they got. And it just wasn't fair to truly grade it at that point because we could see what Khalil Mack did to the Bears defense in 2018, just how he completely transformed that team. And I know this is a sore subject for you, Robert, but um, know, <laughs> we, we don't need to get to, but I mean, it was, we could see it. We, we could, it was very tangible what he did there. Although the Bears have a lot of other issues and yeah, acquiring one pass rusher for two first round picks and everything that they gave up hasn't turned them into it. I'd still do it again. I maintain it. I'd still do it. Yeah, I mean the biggest the biggest reason that they're not a Super Bowl contender it's it's not Cleo Mack's fault. Yeah, right? exactly. It's not it's not Cleo Mack's fault. But you know there was just a lot of rush to like oh my god the Raiders cleaned up this was such like a slam dunk move and you know it's it was important to get that draft capital but I'm not sure how much better they are. They're still trying to fix a pass rush. Their pass rush has been awful for two years. Like can we still make those jokes about the Raiders pass rush? When Gruden is, you know, inevitably when they have another game where they haven't gotten any sacks or, you know, they're they're just consistently not getting pressure. And he says, like, how hard it is to find pass rushers. Do we still in year three get to joke about that where, you know, he had- he came out this spring and he was talking about Cleveland Farrell and he's like, yeah, he does so much stuff that you guys don't see. And it's like, well, for the fourth overall pick, I kind of want to see it. Yeah, and I don't know if that's unreasonable, but I kind of want to see the production from a guy that was picked in the top five. I can find a run stuffer in round three, right? Yeah, or a guy who just gets generates some pressure. You know, yeah, I can find solid but unspectacular pass rushers in a lot of different places. You don't need to draft them fourth overall. I mean, he's making seven million dollars this year. It, it's barely a rookie contract when you take a guy in the top five. Yeah, exactly. And like, and I like Max Crosby. I mean, he's like a, a good find. A great find. But you find him in the fourth round. That's the, that's the nice thing right, about yeah. that. Yeah. So that's, you know, so two years later, I don't feel great about it. I still don't like, you know, I, I don't know if I'll ever advocate for trading away a Hall of Fame player. And Cleo Mack is a Hall of Fame player. And look, you know, Josh Jacobs, great. He's going to be a huge part of their offense. Jonathan Abram looked Great on hard knocks last year, but we still don't really know what sort of player he's actually going to be. He didn't even make it through the the opener last year before he suffered a shoulder injury. And I, I, I don't know. I'd still rather have Khalil Mack, I think. So I want to talk about the offense first because this offense was surprisingly good last season. And Jacobs was a big part of that. He was excellent as a rookie. He was fourth in the league in yards after yards after contact per attempt, first in PFF's elusiveness rating. He looked excellent behind a really improved offensive line. And Miller was much better in his second year. Incognito gave them a lot. Rodney Hudson's still the best center in the league. Trent Brown, for as expensive as he is, he's a solid player. So they finished ninth in offensive DVOA. And I want, I'm curious what you think about this. When I watch this team, the feeling I get while watching them and by looking at their roster I get real strong like 2016, 2017 Chiefs vibes. You, I mean, you can make a ton of connections there. They got the super fast receiver now in Ruggs. They have the playmaking athletic tight end who's their de facto number one receiver in Waller. Solid offensive line, well-designed offense, and a trigger man who is just not the guy to get the most out of. <laughs> I was waiting. That is I was, the feeling I get while watching them. 
Yeah, I was waiting for the and a quarterback who's scared to go downfield. That's exactly what it is. It's you watch them play, and I think that Gruden is still really good. I still think he's got it as a play caller and a play designer, and I think that was proven last year by virtue of what they did without any receiving talent and with a quarterback who's not really willing to let it rip. I think if you put somebody in there who can truly unlock it, that offense changes in a big way. And I don't want to throw Derek Carr off this team before the season has even started. But as we walk into 2020, that is the feeling I have about this group, is that no matter what they do, I think one, I think it's going to be harder for them to be better than they were last year, even with Ruggs and Brian Edwards now on the outside. And two, I still feel like no matter how good they are, we're always going to be asking the question with Derek Carr of, can somebody who's a little bit more aggressive get more out of this offense? Yeah, and that's it, it really all comes down to Derek Carr. And, you know, it's it was so crazy, like kind of diving into the the analytics on Derek Carr and and Sheil Kapadia got like got real into it. And it seems very out of line of like what you see when you watch Derek Carr. I mean, the analytics seem to love him, right? But he's efficient. He's very smart. Yeah. He's very efficient. He knows how to play the position. He's Alex Smithian, I'm telling you. Uh, but give me uh, give me Alex Smith. Give me Alex Smith today on this Raiders team with a leg that might not work. Am I that down on Derek Carr? Is that, is that bad? I, I am not I a Derek know. Carr person. And that's why it's just hard for me to generate much enthusiasm about this team because I love the Ruggs pick it, just in yeah. terms of what he can provide an offense. I just, I can see it. I think Edwards is a really good compliment. If they live, I, my, one of the worries I have though is now they're bringing Jason Witten in. If that takes away any snaps from Darren Waller, John Gruden should just, walk out of the building yeah that should be it if you any of of darren waller's targets go to jason witten we need to have a serious conversation with john gruden but for the most part i like the pieces they have on paper their offensive line is way too thin they're spending so much on their starters they don't have enough capital to pay any depth if anybody gets hurt i think they're in a bad way but i still think in the best case scenario this offense can be very solid at every other position and quarterback is going to hold them back Maybe maybe that's unfair, but that's just how I feel about it. No, I don't I don't think that's unfair and I don't think we're the only people that think that way about the Raiders, right? And it's fair to wonder, you know, I also, you know, the Rugs was the most Raiders pick ever. I mean, Al Davis might oh, have made yeah. that pick, right? I mean, it was it was just so perfect and it was so fitting for what the Raiders have been no matter if they were in Los Angeles, Oakland or now Las Vegas. Is that's the type of player that they want. But does he fit? I mean, what is he going to do? Are they is he are they going to force stuff? He's going to gonna now? catch is a Derek- lot of slants, a lot of slants, and a lot of him running thirty yards downfield and then running back to the huddle. Yeah, I mean, I would like I would buy the stock on the Hunter Renfro, you know, and just catching a lot of stuff underneath and a lot of checkdowns and stuff. I don't know. I just I really like the pick, and I just wonder about the pick and the fit. And maybe this is a long term thing, and they're not Derek Carr isn't going to be their guy long term, and. Maybe next year they're picking a quarterback and they're trading up in the first round. And, you know, I don't think they're I don't think they're going to be bad enough that they could trade up to get Trevor Lawrence. But, you know, maybe that is the plan. Maybe they are completely following this um, this Chiefs model where, you know, you get a guy next year and pair him with Derek Carr and let him take over. If they were willing to draft Cleveland Farrell fourth overall. How many future first round picks do you think Mike Mack would give up to go up and get Trevor Lawrence? We know about his affinity for Clemson players, and now it's Trevor Lawrence. I think the number is somewhere between 10 and 12. That's fair. Yeah. 
I'll take the over. A, a dozen first round picks to get Trevor <laughs> Lawrence. I think that's probably what it would take too. And it would probably take that many to get him away from Jacksonville. Yeah, exactly. As it should. I, for the most part, the offense, I think, is going to be okay. Again, I think that, that threading the needle that they did last year was very difficult. Even with better receivers, I still don't know how much better the offense is going to be than a top 10 finish. Defensively, I think they'll be better just by virtue of the talent that they added. I love Corey Littleton. I think he's an awesome player. I think he's a perfect fit in the modern NFL. I think that Nick Kwiatkowski, the other linebacker they signed, really solid. I think he's a great compliment to Little. I think or Littleton. I think they really play off each other well. But I still have issue questions in the secondary. Even if they added some NFL players, it, it still feels like this defense is going to be better because they almost have to be after finishing thirty first in DVOA. But I still don't know how good overall this group is going to be without much just pop up front. They were bad last year. I mean. They were really bad. I I don't think I can emphasize enough how bad they were defensively last year. And um, I, I'm with you on some of these defensive additions. You know, their linebackers were a major, major liability last year. And, you know, part of that is, you know, they losing Vontez Perfect. And some of these things didn't go according to plan. You know, that it wasn't their plan to have these bad linebackers, you know, and a really bad two deep at, at the linebacker position last year. But I like some of those additions. But like we already talked about, I still don't know where the pass rush is coming from. I don't know how much more, how dramatic the improvement can be on the pass rush. And if you have questions of the pass rush and you have questions on the back end, I'm not sure if just upgrading the linebackers is going to be that big of a difference to become a defense that's going to be competitive in a division with the Chiefs. Their interior pass rush is much better than the guys on the edge. I think that yeah. Malik Collins is a really underrated player. He had a nice season in Dallas last year, but he had a nice season surrounded by other good pass rushers, which typically happens for inside guys. Him and Mo Hurst is a nice little pairing, but I'm not sure if that's enough to carry you if you're not willing to send a lot of extra heat. And if you're willing to do that, you're going to have to rely on your guys in the back. And I don't think those guys are going to be able to hold up if they're put on an island. So it's just hard for me to imagine them being much better than a slightly below average defense. And if the offense doesn't get a ton better, which I don't think there's a path to that happening, it just seems like this team is going to be kind of lingering around that eight and eight, you know, seven and nine range. And the question then is, where do we go from here? Do we go draft a quarterback? It just feels like they're in this kind of purgatory between a rebuilding team and a contending team. And I'm not sure there's a clear path out. Second to last year of Derek Carr's contract. But no guaranteed money left. Yeah. So, I mean, it would be very, very easy for them to move on from Derek Carr after this year. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like the last couple years have been kind of a referendum on Derek Carr. And, you know, we've made a lot of speculation about was he buying a house in Las Vegas and, you know, really reading into every single thing that John Gruden will say about him. I just don't feel like he's their guy long term unless unless this entire offense takes a major leap and he kind of becomes a guy that he hasn't been before. But, you know, I think I, I would be really, really shocked if this time next year we're talking about Derek Carr as the, as the Raiders starting quarterback. With Alex Smith, he had that season in 2017, which ironically is right before he lost his job, where he was a little bit more aggressive. He was willing to push the ball downfield a little bit more. You know, Maybe there's a world where because Ruggs is there and they're scheming some more deep stuff and those options are there, they can kind of push it on to Derek Carr. But you look at every single metric and you look at the tape. He's dead last in uh, to average depth of target. He's the quickest quarterback in the NFL to his checkdowns. He's very efficient in getting to them, but he's just not wired to take advantage of a big play offense. And 
I just think that they might be set up to have one now with Edwards and with rugs and everything else. And I just can't imagine him being the guy that's right. That's the right fit to take advantage of the rest of the players on that team. And then I would say my one other just kind of like big picture question about the Raiders is, and I remember writing about this actually a lot in 2018, the, during the first year of the Gruden tenure is, do they know how to win? And is that important? I mean, they were one in 14 against teams with a winning record since John Gruden took over. And the 2018 season started in really, really rough fashion. Remember, they lost a couple of those first games after leading. I, I think they lost. Like, my, the and, first Monday night game was embarrassing. I mean, yeah. It was, it was not good. Yeah, it was it was really bad. They lost week two, I believe, in Denver. I think they had a blocked field goal or a missed field goal at the end of the game. And um, it just was this team that they just didn't feel ready to compete with the best teams, that there were they would do things that were good enough and you could get kind of enticed by them. And I mean, they were in the playoff hunt last year in early December, and then they lost, what, five of their last six games and really kind of fell back into being one of the really mediocre teams in the NFL. And I'm just not sure if they know how to win, right? And is that is that a real thing? Do you have any sort of concerns about that too? Of just I think kind of- there's, I think as much as it's not knowing how to win, I think that eventually you have to break through the ceiling. Yeah, You have to kind of break through into being a top tier team. And I just don't think they're set up to do that. And a quarterback often plays a huge role in that. And I think you can argue and you can kind of rationalize the play last year and the results last year as, eh, you know, the Antonio Brown thing falls through. Tyrell Williams is dinged up. They don't really have anybody to throw to. And I'm not sure that two rookie receivers as your starters is the is that much of a difference from that. But I do think that if Edwards is serviceable, if Ruggs can give them that element, year two of Renfro, I do think there's going to be enough there this year for them to make an actual assessment of who they want to be moving forward. And I would just, I just wouldn't be surprised if they wanted to be something different. Do you think they could be a playoff team? Yes, I absolutely do. Because I think that, I mean, they were close to being a playoff team last year and the defense was abysmal. So if the defense can be merely okay and the offense can linger around the top 10 again, which I think it can because I have faith in the way that it's designed and just the positions they're putting players in. So if they won 10 games and were a wild card team, that wouldn't surprise me. But I think that's their absolute ceiling. I think I'm with you too. I I feel like I'm more in the nine win ceiling kind of range, but we'll see. We'll see. I think they're a team that's going to be in a lot of games and just never look that good doing it. I mean, the fact that there were a top 10 offense last year and it seems shocking that they were, I think that that's telling. I mean, it's maybe it's just our bias against my bias against John Gruden and the John Gruden jokes and how I don't think Derek Carr's that good. And maybe it's just my working through my own like roadblocks mentally. But I don't think it's a coincidence that it seems shocking that they were a top 10 offense. I think that says a lot about them. Well, and we're going to get to see a lot of them because I think they have five primetime games. I mean, we're, they're, they're going to be all over television. Um, yeah. the, the plan was so they could show off that gorgeous new stadium and it'll just be empty but we're going to get to see a lot of the Raiders this year so let's just hope that those are you know competitive and exciting Raiders teams come you know October November when they're on Sunday night and Monday night football let's get to the team in your backyard a team that has generated a lot of buzz this offseason man I mean I mean it's they added a lot of fun talent I, I just very simple question where is your seat on the Broncos hype train? Are you in the back? Are you in the front? Is it comfy? Do you have like a, is it first class? 
No, I'm like, a, I'm the one How on the very accommodations. Ba- like? I've got like a handbrake. Like I'm the one in the back or like if this was a driver's ed car, I'm like the guy <laughs> in the passenger seat, like trying to brake externally from the driver. I feel like I'm among people in like the Denver media core. And well, I haven't covered the Broncos exclusively since I guess midway through 2012. I do consider myself, you know, part of the Denver media core because of course, well, especially this year where I'm not traveling and going out to see other teams. They're the only team that I actually see in person anymore. Um, I feel like I'm probably like the Debbie Downer of the group. And, you know, I do, I'll do a lot of like local radio interviews and that, that kind of stuff in Denver. And it always is like, Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson won MVPs in their second year. Can Drew Locke do that? And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, you know, like, let's maybe pull that back just a little bit. And um, I mean, there are a lot of things that I like. Mostly, I like that they have a plan on offense. And yeah. they haven't had a plan on offense in a very long time, other than let's just not mess this up. And they wanted to just have this, like, stability at offense and like a grown-up leading the huddle when I don't really care about that if the grown-up like we talked about with Derek Carr will won't go downfield or has no leadership skills or um, they have no offensive creativity and you know quarterback here in Denver has been a mess just I mean Drew Locke I think is the seventh quarter starting quarterback since Peyton Manning retired Um, they'll have had a different starting quarterback on opening day year after year after year it's been a complete carousel and I will say it has been quite refreshing as somebody who lives here and listens to sports talk radio fairly regularly <laughs> to just not have this off season of who the quarterback is going to be. I mean, I think it was two years, was it two years ago, two or three years ago where it was, they literally like one of the radio stations was literally doing team Paxton versus team Trevor. Like how depressing is that? Oh but God. it was like hours and hours and hours of like, debating whether it should be Paxton Lynch or Trevor Simeon. I mean, that is awful. That is living in one of the worst NFL timelines. And that, that's just staring into the void. You got to make some real, <sighs> ask yourself some real hard questions about your decisions. If that's something you're spending time talking about. Holy cow. I mean, it was, it was brutal. And Training camp was rough I say to that watch. as someone who was on the Hoge and Johns podcast today talking about Mitchell <laughs> Trubisky and Nick Foles for half an hour today, by the way. Yeah, I'm definitely well, a hypocrite. So, so similar, but I mean, it was, and, and that was, year after year after year, you know, this time last year, it was like, oh, is Joe Flacco, Joe Flacco, like, come on. It was a bad idea from the second that they pulled, they tried, they orchestrated that trade and it was never going to work and it didn't work. And I do like that they tried to give Drew Locke a little bit of time that he didn't have to come in with like the first round pressure. But I mean, he's the guy, like he, he's their guy. And I don't know if he's going to be their guy for five years, 10 years, 15 years, but at least for the first time in a very, very long time since, you know, before I had a child who is now in school, the Broncos have (laughs) their quarterback situation kind of figured out. I don't love the depth behind him. I have some issues with the way that they've built their quarterback room as a whole, but I do like Drew Locke and I know you've been watching a lot of Drew Locke tape. You probably know more about Drew Locke than a lot of people given how much Missouri football you have watched. I've watched a lot of Drew Locke in my life. Yeah, it's. I don't think Lena was born before uh, since the pe- uh, the Broncos have not had a six five quarterback. They've been trotting statues out like her entire lifetime. So it's nice that they actually have like a, a human being at quarterback now that can actually move around a little bit in the building. When you're thinking about the Broncos, 
and and you talk to people, everything else. What are their questions about Drew Lock? What questions do they need answered? Because I want to have a Drew Lock conversation first, and then we can kind of get to the support system they've put around him. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, there's some mechanical stuff with Drew Lock, you know, that you know, some footwork stuff. Yeah, um, you, you can know, see some, that for sure. Yeah, mechanical stuff, and you know, the questions that they had about him and why they didn't take him as a first round quarterback and why they wanted to give him a little bit more time. Those things are still there. I mean, that he came out of a system at Missouri where, yes, he was a four year starting quarterback in the SEC, but he didn't play in a pro style offense. He wasn't used to huddling. He didn't play under center and. For as much as the league has moved away from that and has shown that you don't need to be that style of quarterback to win, John Elway has not. John Elway has not evolved beyond what a quarterback, what he believes a quarterback needs to do and what how they need to function. So there are still questions about just, you know, adapting him to the pro game and um, those sorts of things. But, you know, I would say the stuff that they don't have questions about are his leadership, um, the way that he works. And the way that his teammates respond to him. And given what had happened here from 2016 through, you know, late in the 2019 season, that cannot be discounted. I mean, we cannot understate enough or cannot overstate enough how important it is that they have a guy that everybody looks at and says, yeah, that's our quarterback. Are you saying that Brock Osweiler, Trevor Simeon and Joe Flacco aren't the most charismatic people in the world? Is that what you're trying to imply? Don't forget Case Keenum. Case seems like I, like a decent Boston person, Lynch. though. I, I would sit down and have a conversation with Case Keenum. All the other guys just, again, statuesque in every single way, both physically and mentally. Yeah. I mean, they were all nice guys, right? And it was just really funny to like think back to all these interviews that you know Emmanuel Sanders and Demarius Thomas and these guys did over the years about like how much they respected Trevor Simeon and just like, <laughs> oh, it's so great. He's our guy. And, I don't oh, mean it's to so, be mean. I'm not so trying to be mean, but that's all, funny. Well, and they're all like, they're all really nice guys. And like Trevor Simeon is going to build himself a really long NFL career. He's a guy who's going to last for 15 years in the NFL. And he's going to come in and he's going to play two or three games here at a time. He's going to be a tremendous backup quarterback. But the Broncos were fooling themselves to think that he was going to be there starting quarterback and the fact that he was so much better than the other guys in camp i remember remember mark sanchez i mean i do i I remember a lot of things about mark sanchez yeah um he was briefly a bronco he was he was a bronco while i was pregnant and um touched my very pregnant belly which i don't think i've ever told that story (laughs) in a podcast before but you know don't don't do that just in general don't don't do that that's one of the things he, he, he didn't mean it and i mean he mentioned it a very nice way but it was it was very weird so let's not do that that's my lasting memory of the mark sanchez era in denver but yeah i mean but back to drew Locke is that he was very impressive from the moment that he came into the building just in terms of how he carried himself the way that he acted around joe flacco a guy who wasn't super eager to help him out at all um and then he got hurt. You know, he hurt his wrist, what, week three, I guess, of the of training camp last year, or week three of the preseason last year. Went on IR for a lot longer than anybody expected that he was going to need to be on IR given what his injury was. But he used that time really well. And there were a lot of people here who were burned by the Paxton Lynch experience and how this, like, highly touted physical quarterback didn't make use of his time and his studying time and his work habits and all that stuff. And, and Drew Locke has done all of that stuff. And you noticed an immediate change when he came in in December and when he became their starting quarterback, the way that 
everybody seemed to play better around him. Garrett Bowles played the best stretch of his career at left tackle the last month of the season. Um, you know, he unlocked something within Cortland Sutton and uh, Noah Fant that we hadn't seen earlier in the year. So it just gave everybody a lot of optimism that while he's very far from a finished pro- finish product and it would probably be naive to expect that, you know, he's going to win four out of every five games that he plays you know, heading into the season, there's just a lot to like there foundationally enough so that they went ahead and tailored their entire off season around him and this offense and what they're going to look like with him and what they need to do to try to be competitive in this division. I went back and I watched a few Drew Lock games today. And my takeaway was he did nothing last year as a rookie down the stretch that would lead me to believe that he can't be a good enough quarterback to take advantage of the circumstances that they've set up for him. You know, there were some things that he did that were really good. The footwork is disastrous at times. I mean, there are moments when the, the pocket gets crowded and he's just fading back and letting the ball go. It's like, oh my God. And some of the throws he made, even in that Houston game where he's playing well and the stats look great, those are an inch away from getting picked off. I mean, it, it's a 50-50 proposition with him last year, but I still like some of the stuff that he did. He could really deliver the ball over the middle of the field and they gave him the chance to do that. I think that if they really let him attack that with some play action, he looks good while doing that. I thought he looked good while move, the pocket was moving. And that's something that with a Pat Shermer offense, I think they're going to give him the chance to do. So in those few games, you know, there are some bad things, but there's nothing that's a deal breaker. And I think that when you have somebody that you is functional and you can work with, it's all about what you put around him. And like you said, what they put around him this offseason, it's hard to argue with. I mean, you just think about it all, you know, just like think about it in a theoretical way. It's like, all right, you got your burner and handler. Jerry Judy is a perfect complimentary receiver to Cortland Sutton. He's a fantastic route runner. You have Fant stretching the seam. You have Philip Lindsay. You have an offensive line that I think is functional. I think that they have the bodies there that Mike Munchen can get the most out of them. You bring in Pat Shermer, who I think is a pretty decent offensive coordinator. His last two jobs not coaching Eli Manning. So Case Keenum in 2017 in Minnesota and then Daniel Jones last year. I like some of the stuff that they did. I think seeing Drew Locke in something like that and that version of the offense, it can work. So if Drew Locke is good enough, I think this offense can be really, really fun this year. Yeah, I think so. And and they need to be. I mean, because when I go back and watch those five games that Drew Locke played last year, where you, you see a lot of things to like just about him and his aggressiveness and these young players, the stuff that I didn't like was really a lot of like the function of the offense itself Mm -hmm. and the play calling. And there was not a ton of creativity. I mean, I don't know. You might be more excited, maybe a little more excited about Pat Shermer than I was. I wasn't like, this is a super inspired hire necessarily. I don't think it's inspired, but I think it's an upgrade, but I think it will be an upgrade. And you know, it's tough. This is a tough year. I mean, for a guy like Julak to not have an off season and to not have a, you know, all of that in-person time that he was going to need, you know, working with Shermer and working with Mike Shula, their new quarterbacks coach. Um, You know, that's not a year between year one and year two is not a great time to go through all of those massive changes for a quarterback. Um, But, you know, I, I, I love the speed guys that they added. I'm excited to see KJ Hamler back. I mean, he was really good at the very beginning of camp and then got hurt. So he hasn't practiced a ton, but I will say I've been out there a couple times, a couple days to watch their practice. And, you know, watch their highlight videos and stuff regularly and read Nick Cosbinder stuff a lot on The Athletic. And Jerry Judy has been the star of training camp, like bar none. It's not surprising at all. 
it's like every single day he's doing stuff. And I've been I've been a little reticent to get too much on like the Jerry Judy hype train because I do remember exactly this time two years ago, Cortland Sutton just dominated training. There's camp. such different players though. There's such different players. And that's the thing. That's why I like Judy so much is because he's the exact type of receiver that even with limited camp, limited reps, all of this stuff, it doesn't matter. He's just pro ready. He knows space. Yeah. He understands how to get open. Sutton, he's going to make those splash plays, which yeah. are exciting in camp. But when you can't create separation, I think that your transition into the league is a little bit slower. Judy, that's his number one skill. I mean, you yeah. saw that with guys like Keenan Allen. Uh, I think the Terry McLaurin was a great example of that last year. Those sorts of receivers, they can be good instantly. And that's yeah. why I think that even if you're worried about the time and everything else, he's still going to be a functional NFL player from day one. Yeah, he's so refined. I mean, you do not see guys coming into the league that their route tree is that developed, that they're so good in and out of their breaks that they, I mean, he's he's winning like all of his one-on-one -on -one matchups in training camp. And that shouldn't happen when you're playing against one of the highest paid defenses in the NFL and some really good corners like AJ Bouye and uh, Bryce Callahan, but he is. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's why I'm excited. That's why I'm optimistic. I think this is a really good young core of offensive players and they just, they were so bad in the red zone, not just last year. I mean, I think I, you know, we, we look at 2019, but they have just had no dynamic aspects to the offense since 2014. They got plenty now, man. Really, right? <laughs> um, yeah, they absolutely do. And I and I'm fine with them just saying, look, we have to keep up with the Chiefs. You know, they're not even like dancing around it. They're just saying, look, this is what the league is right now, and this is what our division is right now. And we're not competitive. It's a fun arms race Chiefs. in the division. Yeah. I mean, it, it, and look, they haven't beaten the Chiefs since um, I believe it was September of 2015. They won on a Thursday night in Peyton Manning's last season. The Chiefs have owned this division. They've owned the Broncos. They've gotten close a couple of times, but they weren't going to beat. It wouldn't matter how much money they spent on defense, how good their pass rushers were, how how good you know Von Miller could play, or how how good Chris Chris Harris Jr. was was against Tyreek Hill. They couldn't even come close to scoring points on what was not a great Chiefs defense, and so you just weren't going to be competitive in that division. And they knew they had to add guys that could try to match up with some of the speed that the chiefs have and just try to find some way to, you know, they're, they're not going to win games in this division scoring 17 points. And they used to think they could get away with that and they're not going to get away with that anymore. I want to talk about the defense, but two things about the offense, one signing I liked one signing I didn't. I think Graham Glasgow was an underrated player. I think he's going to be good for them. He's going to be a stabilizing force. I'm really excited about Lloyd Cushenberry. That, that's a line you're not going to hear on many podcasts. He's a, like a third-round rookie. I don't think that's going to be something. I am pumped about him. I think if you can get a center from a really good passing offense that went empty a ton and really relied on five-man protections and the center's ability to kind of orchestrate all of that, I love people like that. I think he's going to be great. The one signing I did not like, and I think you and I are in agreement about this, why does Melvin Gordon need to be on this team? Like, why couldn't they just have Philip Lindsay and like a sixth round pick? Can you explain this to me? Yeah, it's so weird because, you know, all of these years that John Elway has been running the Broncos, you really, he's built the teams based on like what his image is, the type of teams that he won with, the type of players that he surrounded himself with, the type of Broncos teams that he was successful with, the type of defensive players that he hated facing. So why do you go out and pay Melvin Gordon $8 million a year? Two years, you know, it's a two-year deal, 16 total. It's just out of line with what 
works in the NFL these days. And, you know, I think, I think he'll be good. I think he'll be a good kind of workhorse running back. I got tricked somehow into taking him in one of my fantasy drafts and hate myself for it. And I know I'm going to regret it. I already regret it. And it's only September 2nd. Um, but I, you know, I, we had to grade these trades or grade these moves back in free agency in March. And, you know, I, I try to look at these things with like, what are the teams thinking and what are the possibilities and try not to be super negative about all of these, but the Gordon one just never felt right to me. It was one of my least favorite deals in free agency, the value, the fit, um, if you know, certainly felt like an overpay at that position, especially when you consider what Melvin, uh, what Austin Eakler is getting with the Chargers, you know, who basically is replacing him. Um, but I was also kind of looking at it more long term, and I, I think the Broncos look at Philip Lindsay and they don't see him as their every down running back, as their kind of their their number one bell cow running back. I think they think he's better with limited snaps. Let him be kind of more of a home run hitter, come in on third downs, um, you know, that they're really going to alternate both of these guys. But I think when you give Melvin Gordon that sort of contract in a season where you could have re-signed Philip Lindsay because he was an undrafted rookie a couple of years ago. So he he's at that point now where he could get a new deal and you didn't. And they didn't really even have real conversations with him throughout this offseason or with his agents about signing him to a long-term contract, you're setting up what I think could end up being a pretty ugly and unwinnable situation with Philip Lindsay. And I think you kind of have to understand. So Philip Lindsay is the ultimate Colorado kid. So Colorado doesn't, we don't, like breed NFL players here. It just, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> Everyone's too chill. They're just hanging out. I mean, we breed like female Olympians, like Missy Franklin and Amy Van Dyken and Michaela Schifrin. We don't breed NFL players. We're at this like really kind of like rare time in the NFL right now where there's actually a number of really good star NFL players who are from Colorado. It just, it just doesn't typically happen. You know, Christian McCaffrey, um, Austin Eakler is from here. Clayus Campbell, Clayus Campbell and um, Philip Lindsay went to the same high school, but so, but Philip Lindsay grew up, he went to Denver South high school. He's the first player to play for the Broncos who came up through their like peewee youth league program. I mean, these pictures of him as a child wearing like Broncos, like playing for their youth league, um, went to the university of Colorado. He picked the Broncos in large part because his mom wanted him to stay here when he was choosing between options. And he is outside of Von Miller, probably the most popular Bronco right now. And John Elway does not care about that stuff, I don't think. And it's just setting up to be this really messy situation where it's, I just don't see a long term end where this guy who is a fan favorite, he's been a really good player, he is by far outperformed his contract already. And it's a really bad message to send to him. And fans are going to be real pissed, like real, real pissed when Philip Lindsay ends up leaving in free agency. Let's hit the defense really quickly before we move on to the chargers. I, I mean, it seems like they've invested a lot of resources You know, they went out and they get OJ Boye, but they bring in Jarrell Casey. Hopefully Bradley Chubb is back healthy. I know there's some questions there where there's some it's a little murky about how healthy he is right now, but it just seems like year two of Fangio, all the talent that they have over there. Am I just relying on inertia way too much? Just thinking this will be a top eight, top 10 defense just by virtue of the players they have and the coaches they have. Well, they're the highest paid defense in the NFL. So they better be 
they better be good, <laughs> yeah, right? Top I mean, eight might not be enough. Yeah, I mean, so they are they're the highest paid defense both in cap dollars and percentage of their cap. Um, right now, they're spending fifty seven percent of their cap on defensive players. There's only two other teams in the league that are over fifty percent, and that's the um, the Steelers and the Ravens. So they're spending big on defense, and sure, that's one of those things that you can do when you have a rookie quarterback on a second round pick contract. But you know, I do. I I like a lot of the defensive moves that they they made this year. Um, the the Gerald Casey trade um, was one of my favorite moves. And it was a little bit, it was kind of a lot to give up and to pay for him, but they really needed him. And I really like the internal pressure, interior rush that he's going to be able to provide. I think their front seven um, and especially their D-line um, is going to be really strong. I am, I'm getting, I'm starting to get real worried about Bradley Chubb. It's, it's not great that he kind of went, through for three weeks of camp or two weeks of camp or whatever it was, and then got pulled from a scrimmage, hasn't practiced. They're using all this language of like, we think he's going to be ready for week one. And he's 11 months out from his ACL, almost 12 full months. So that's really, really troubling that all of a sudden he doesn't feel right. And he's, he's such an important part of this defense taking a jump. I mean, he is the Khalil Mack guy for a Vic Fangio defense and more so than Von Miller is, you know, I think he's the guy who's perfect. He is the ideal Vic Fangio pass rusher. And it's making me real nervous that he's, that he hasn't been practicing and did something else happen. And they're being real cagey about what's going on. And, you know, when guy, when teams start getting real cagey a week before the season starts, you start wondering if something is going to be up there, but, um, you know, so let's, let's be positive, right. I'm, I'm going to be Miss Sunshine here and let's say he is healthy. Um, that pass rush duo is insane. You know, they're expecting a bounce back year from Von Miller, who was actually really good last year, but was down by his standards. Um, you know, he's really, really motivated to have kind of a breakthrough year and he's motivated by some personal stuff too, right? I mean, he's never won a defensive player of the year award. Um, you know, he's really watching where he is on the all-time sacks list and those sorts of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, they should be good. And the practices that I've watched, I watch them and I say, that's a good defense. You know, it looks like they've got some depth at pass rusher. Um, they're trying to figure out exactly what their secondary is going to look like. I really like Justin Simmons um, and Kareem Jackson as their safeties. Cornerback, a little bit more of a question exactly what that group is going to look like. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm, I don't watch them and I think, okay, that's the 2015 Broncos defense where you watch training camp in the 2015 Broncos defense and it was like, oh shit, those guys are destroyed. I mean, they were just like wrecking stuff every single snap in training camp. But I look at them and I the think they're really The hope is that they good. don't have to be that though. You know, the hope is that they don't have to be a truly transcendent unit. You know, if they're a top eight defense yeah. and I think that if you, we're getting Callahan back, getting Chubb back, if that's where they settle and this offense actually can really get something going and lock hits his stride, everything else. I think that's where it, it really comes together for them. They don't have to be truly great. As long as they're really good and the offense takes a step forward. I mean, this team could be knocking on the doorstep of the playoffs. Yeah. And that's what the buzz around here. I and mean, that's how you start. We started this segment, right? It's like, what are people saying about the Broncos? And there's a lot of buzz that they're going to be a playoff team. And I think the fact that there's a extra wild card team will help them because I guess this is a spoiler for the rest of the podcast. I don't think anybody else is beating the Chiefs in this division. So if you want to get in, Shocker. you're going to have to win. <laughs> you know, you're going to have to get to that 9-10 win and get in as a wild card. And that I think that's where the Broncos ceiling is. I think their floor is now higher 
than it used to be where, you know, Agreed. last year there were ways I could say, oh, could they might only win four games. And now I think they're kind of in that seven, seven to nine win range and probably won't be below that. Let's have a really depressing conversation about the Chargers. Are you ready? <laughs> sure. Is there a more tortured fan base in the NFL right now than, than San Diego-based Chargers fans? So you have your team taken away from you, and those people exist. I know there are jokes about the Chargers having no fans. There are Chargers fans in San Diego. So you have your team taken away from you, and then every single year, by the, before Labor Day, you have at least one, usually more than one, season-altering injury. This year, it's Derwin James, who is now out for the year with a meniscus injury after missing 11 games last year. One of my favorite players to watch in the league. It just seems like this team is so incredibly snake bit. And even if we move beyond the injuries, I just have real questions about what this team is and more importantly, what they want to be. I think their offseason was profoundly strange when you consider them going out and signing some veterans and free agent deals, whether it's Brian Balaga, Linval Joseph, Chris Harris, all players I love, by the way, like personal favorites of mine who and have been for a while. But if those are the pieces you're adding, along with drafting a quarterback in the top 10, but then you trade up back into the first round for a linebacker, which aligns more with this win now attitude than the we're going to let the quarterback sit and wait attitude. It just I just don't know which direction they're moving in. And I have serious questions about it. Yeah, I'm the same way. I mean, I'm looking at our rundown and the notes for preparing for this. And literally my first sentence that I wrote is, who are they? With multiple question marks. Because, And they're one of the teams that we're actually getting to learn a little bit more about because we're not seeing most of these teams. We get to see the Chargers on Hard Knocks. And we've watched, what, like four episodes of Hard Knocks at this point? I don't have HBO right now. I got to go back and watch. Yeah, that's a a setback. Robert, what are you you doing? They moved from the HBO Go to the HBO Max. And I don't know how my television works. It's just, it's a whole thing. We need to get like a teenager over to set you set the your- fact that I can record all of these podcasts and the fact that Kent and Marissa our producers get the audio that's about as good as I do with technology so I, I'm gonna need somebody else to set up my HBO Max account for okay me. well so I've been watching Hard Knocks um, I'm halfway through last night's episode I'm not all the way through it yet and I still don't know who the Chargers necessarily are and we're actually getting to see a lot of them I mean I think there's the things that I already knew about the Chargers have been amplified by watching them on Hard Knocks I know that I would run through a wall for Anthony Lynn. I know that Keenan Allen is really freaking good and that Keenan Allen and Chris Harris training camp battles was going to be amazing television. I know that Joey Bosa is one of the most boring humans in the NFL, but he's really, really good. And him and Melvin Ingram make them the most like the oddest couple in NFL yeah, pass really do. duos. There's some personalities on that team, man. And you add Chris Harris to that mix. It's Ooh, fun. Yeah. I, I like a lot of the guys on that team. The Keenan Allen, Chris Harris thing is awesome. I, he has Keen, I've had a lot of conversations with Keenan Allen in my life, just about receiver. And I wrote a profile of him once. And the guy he would mention to you about somebody who tortured him early in his career. And he, it was so hard to go against him. It was always Chris Harris. Yeah. And the fact that they're on the same team now and you get to watch one-on-ones with Casey Hayward and Keenan Allen, it makes me sad. I don't get to go to chargers camp this year. Yeah. Cause it would have been really fun. And I wish they would have mic'd them up every day. And they, they did feature them in one of the episodes and they got into the history and there was a lot of trash talking last year. And, you know, Keenan Allen was like trolling, trying to troll Chris Harris on Twitter. And then Chris would come back. I mean, there was something about, carrying jock straps and uh, stuff the dudes talk about. Um, but I still don't know. All of us. There's a I meeting. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not invited and that's totally fine. Um, but I don't know. 
I don't really know any more about like who they are offensively, what their long-term plan is. I don't feel any better about the Justin Herbert pick by watching him on Hard Knocks. I mean, we we talked about like the Drew Locke it factor. I don't see that from Justin Herbert, right? I mean, he seems like a more meek guy. I mean, I, it, everyone everyone I've talked to about him, I talked to a GM this spring about you know, just the quarterback class and what he saw out of those guys. And he said that you know, he really thought as a dude, Justin Herbert was a fantastic person. Yeah. But personality-wise and just ha- being magnetic and whether or not people were drawn to him, there were questions about that. And that seems like bullshit. It seems like anonymous scout yeah, nonsense. Yeah, like does that, that matter, the draft. right? But I think sometimes that does matter. I really do. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't jump off the screen by any means. I mean, he probably has well, like four episodes in and he's maybe he said four sentences. And that's, you know, that's who he is. And they know who they knew who he is when they draft who he was when they drafted him. Um, but I yeah, I just have questions about are they yeah, are they trying to win right now? Are they trying to keep up with the Chiefs? What is their offense going to look like with Tyrod Taylor and Justin Herbert? That's my can biggest they, question. Yeah, like, can they? Because you can look back what? I mean, we look back a, a few years to when Anthony Lynn and Tyrod Taylor is like the best case scenario for what the Chargers offense could could look like. You know, is it going to have a lot more design runs, option plays? Uh, I mean, th- they're not going to look anything like they looked with Phillip Rivers. That's for sure. Our, our beat writer, um, Daniel Popper, tweeted something the other day about um, how telling it is to hear Anthony Lynn say, we got a, re- we got a mobile quarterback. And, you know, that's something that he seems to be excited about. And, but I just, I don't know what they're going to look like, how functional they're going to be. How is, is their offensive line going to fall apart because of injuries, because it always does. Um, so yeah, I just have a lot of questions about direction and I'm not letting myself get sucked into the Chargers preseason hype train. Me neither. Again. I always get it. I always get lured by it and I'm, it's not going to happen this year. I'm not letting it happen. I'm being more vigilant about it. I think the offense will have some more designed runs. I think there'll be a lot more play action. Uh, I was surprised to look back at some of the numbers today. The, those Bills teams under Tyrod Taylor were a little lower in play action rate than I thought they would be or more middle of the road than top five or 10, like I assumed, but it was still like 24% of dropbacks with rivers. They were near the bottom of the league every single year. And I think one, that's because they live in shotgun all the time, which is a rivers thing. But two, I just don't think rivers wanted to do it. And that's kind of the interesting push and pull when you have an aging quarterback is that he has so much input on what the offense looks like that it's not just the offensive coordinator. So you have the same coordinator now, Shane, Steichen, 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 Steichen. Yeah. So he was the quarterbacks coach for a while, but now even if you have a similar staff, I think it's going to look a lot different because you don't have Rivers pulling a lot of those strings. So I think you're going to have some more RPOs. You're going to have some more design runs. I think Austin Eckler is going to have a monster year because the running game is usually helped by a mobile quarterback. And Lashawn McCoy caught 59 passes. Last year, the last year that Tyrod Taylor was a starter in Buffalo, Tyrod not afraid to check the ball down. So I assume that Eckler is going to get a lot of run when you combine that with Allen. I know Mike Williams is hurt now, but he's that deep threat. Hunter Henry back healthy. The offensive line's a little bit better. I think the pieces are there for them to be okay. I just don't know anything about what it's going to look like. Yeah, and when when is Herbert going to play? Because he's going to play, right? I mean, rookie quarterbacks I could see don't them si- sit. I could see them sitting him. The you think whole year. so? You think the? I think him and what? How much? development he needs after that playing in that in at Oregon. I also think that Telesco is just kind of wired differently than a lot of other and Telesco and Lynn both. Usually when you pick a quarterback in the top ten, you're dealing with 
a regime that's often scrambling. And that's not the case in San Diego. Or in San Diego, I still do it. I still do it all the time. That's not the case with the Chargers. Anthony Lynn got a contract extension in February. You know, Telesco's done a really good job of identifying talent. This team is set up to be patient in a way that a lot of other franchises aren't. And I would not be surprised if they ended up sitting Herbert the whole year. Yeah, so I think it would be interesting to see if they stick with it. Because if they're competitive and if they're, you know, four and four at midseason or you know, even better if they're over 500 at some point, then there's no reason to start him. What happens though, if they, you know, their defense falls apart without Derwin James or they lose somebody else on defense or they lose Tyra. Well, if they lose Tyra Taylor, we know it's, we know what's going to happen. And that's what happened in Cleveland is they never intended Baker Mayfield to start. I mean, I think we can, we could relitigate everything that happened that last year of the Hugh Jackson tenure. But, you know, Tyra Taylor lost his job in Cleveland to Baker Mayfield because he suffered a concussion. And I think that's something I'm always going to be concerned about now with um, with Taylor. Sure. You know, I guess I'm just curious how if they're not good, do they stick with that plan of staying with with Taylor? And or at some point, do you feel that pressure that inevitably organizations feel and they end up having to put their rookie in late in the year? I don't think they'll bang their head against the wall for no reason. I think they're smarter than that. But I also just don't think they're scrambling. And I don't think they have the urgency that a lot of other teams in this situation typically have. The defense is an interesting question. I mean, losing Derwin James is, it's not, the problem with losing Derwin James is it's, you're not just losing him and his talent. You're losing all the things he gives you. It's like losing three players because of how many different things he can do. So, you know, you can say, all right, well, we play plug Rayshon Jenkins in here and Nasir Adelis here is the other safety spot. And we have Kenneth Murray now to play linebacker. So Derwin doesn't have to walk down as much. But just you lose so much flexibility. I still think they have enough talent on that defense, especially with Murray and Tranquil now, we're a very underrated linebacking core, have the chance to be in the middle, bringing Linval Joseph in to press the pocket. I like a lot of the players. I just think that, I don't know. I just think with losing Derwin James, you lose that chance to be truly great, and they probably settle just as a very good defense after a down year last year. Yeah, did you like the, it was like the NFL research stat that they put out right after James was ruled out for the year where they showed that the Chargers were better when he was on the field? Good, good, good stats. I I really value that one. Yeah, thanks, thanks. I I could see that one. I could see that with my own eyes. Um, But yeah, I mean, I'm, I I do like a lot of their defense, and that's I think why I was, I mean, I was never on the Chargers hype wagon. I was just was not going to let that happen this year. But if you were going to get there, it was because of those guys, and now it's just that sinking feeling of dread that comes in again. And um, you know, I'm still curious to see what their secondary is going to look like. I know. You know, we, you and me are founding members of the Chris Harris fan club. Um, All the time. You know, I, but there were a lot of questions outside of the fan club, I think, of wondering, well, exactly what is he going to do? They already have a slot corner. Where is he going to play? He slipped in 2019. Um, and I do have some just questions. I just, I'm very curious to watch him in a Gus Bradley defense. So am I. Because I, for a lot of reasons, I, th- I think he'll be good and I think he'll thrive there. Mike, question about it is that, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with him over the years. He's been one of my favorite guys to cover because he's candid all the time. He will not hold back what he thinks all the time. And it would sometimes drive his team crazy because when they were, when the Broncos were bad, he was not afraid to say that they were bad and what was going on. But one of the things that he loved to talk about was he loved to rag on those Seattle style defenses and those zone defenses and the cornerbacks who don't play man coverage. And, you know, they're going to play 
a lot of zone, right? Are they going to be doing a lot of cover three, a lot of cover four? I mean, um, they were the, the lowest man percentage in the NFL last year. I believe it was about 12% of dropbacks. Yeah. So he, you know, he's always prided himself as being a type of cornerback who can play anywhere and in any scheme. And now he's going to get to show that because he's going to be playing in a scheme unlike anything he's ever done before. And, you know, he, he, Everybody assumes, okay, he's a slot corner and he's going to play slot. Um, I want to see if they're going to play him outside as well. You know, he's been at his best when he's been a every down corner where he lines up outside in base and then moves inside and gets to cover these slot receivers and, you know, gets to kind of move around all, all over the defense. So um, it'll, I'm excited to watch him. Um, you know, the fact that he and Melvin Gordon just switched number 25s between Denver and the Chargers is pretty wild. Um, but so yeah, I, I was higher on that signing. Um, it was a really good value. I, I know it was less money than he thought he was going to get when he went into free agency. But, um, you know, I, I also love a good like rivalry. And that's going to be a really, really fun week the first time that the Broncos and Chargers get to play each other. It's a fun division. I think that it's going to be really competitive. There are going to be games that I want to watch. I want to watch all of these teams, Raiders included. I think they're the least fun, but I still their offense could be worth watching. I want to see what Rugs can do. I feel like this is similar in some ways to the NFC North in the sense that a lot of those teams could be eight, nine, ten win teams. They're just a dominant team at the end. So yeah. that that's that's the major difference. So I think that you know this isn't going to surprise anybody. I assume both of us are picking the Chiefs to win the end. I'm going to pick the Raiders. No, yeah, I'm picking the Chiefs. Yeah. (laughs) It just, it's so hard to find a a version of this season where they're not a dominant team outside of a Mahomes injury. And that's the last thing. It's a dark timeline that you and we're not going to live in. We're not going to live in that. I'm not even going to let myself imagine it. No, definitely don't want that. All right, Lindsay, thank you so much. Really appreciate you doing this. This was fun as hell. We will be back every single Thursday during the season previewing the league at large the next division preview we're going to be doing on this feed is monday with mike sando who knows the nfc west extremely well i can't wait for that until then we are going to be having a fantasy show on friday as we're going to be doing all season so please tune in for that enjoy your weekend i'll be back with you guys on monday thanks for listening to the athletic football show talk to you guys soon this was the athletic football show